far-fetched, but in the 70s, it wasn't so far-fetched. It was real, and they had to develop characters so much more than they do with the visual. And since I'm an English teacher, I love to take children places in their minds that your eyes cannot go. That's what the beauty of great literature is. Everybody takes and goes different places and develops characters in their mind's eye, not in their physical eye. But this show was awesome. You remember, I, I just vividly remember a few things. One of them I always remember is that lit fuse. Psst, you know, dun, 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 you know, that whole thing. And that lit fuse was such a metaphor, and it's a great picture of, okay, you've got a task at hand. It's going to end in probably the death or destruction of the bad guy. But there's a time, from the time it's lit to the time you know it's going to finish. And there's a sense of urgency that you have to get this. Once the fuse is lit, you've got to get this done. And, um, but I remember the famous tagline, you all know it, you know, the message that self-destructs, you know? It says, as always, should any of you or your IMF force be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your, you know, blah, blah, blah. The IMF, the impossible missions force. I love that. I mean, how cool was that? I wanted to be that guy. I wanted to be that guy because I wanted to wear the mask that concealed my identity. I wanted to be that guy that concealed who I was to fake out the enemy, to pretend I was someone else, right? To hide who I really was. And I, just, I was thinking about this, and I got to thinking about how real that is in our lives as believers. Because the reality is, that's where many of us are, including myself, and we're all honest with ourselves. At times, maybe more often than not, regarding our Christian walk, we have this mask that conceals our heart of hypocrisy, and it conceals a heart of false motive, even in the name of Christianity, in the name of Christian service, we all fall victim in the name of Christ's love, to this mask we wear that we put on that conceals really hypocritical false motive. And I want to explore that this morning, so we're going to do that. Uh, and I've entitled my message, uh, Mission Impossible. Now Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has given us a message, and I believe that this mission, this task, is frankly not possible. It is Mission Impossible, and we're going to explore why that is. So let's pray before we dive into the text. Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, may I decrease, you increase. May your spirit speak through your revealed revelation with truth, rightly dividing that we may be pierced to our heart, that we may again understand a simple truth that has eternal consequence not only for ourselves, but for all those that are around us. Jesus, may you be at the forefront this morning. Speak to us about who you are and who we are to be and how we are to live it out. Whatever has happened this week that has caused us discomfort or discouragement, or may we lay it at the foot of the cross. Whatever sin we bring in here this morning, May we lay it at the foot of the cross. It's been forgiven. May we be open and ready to receive 
your truth. And may it change us for your glory, for your kingdom, for our good. In Christ's name, amen. So Bill read us a passage, a message that is really one of the most wonderful, just amazing, and quite frankly scary passages in all the book of Ephesians with this content really littered throughout the Bible. And it touches the very heart of the Christian life. It just does. It's the subject of love. And you'll note in verse 2, the little phrase, look at it, it says, walk in love. Nothing could be more direct definition of how you and I are to live as Christians than to walk in love. As Christians, our lives would be characterized by love. And we're going to unpack this, and I hope is what a very clear understanding of what the Lord means when he says, right there in verse 1, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Well, how do we be imitators of God? Well, in this text, to walk in love. And it's a simple message. No earth-shattering doctrine is present in this passage, but the truth has profound implications because true love's counterfeit is all around us. And frankly, we can easily live out an unbiblical definition of love, even when we think we're doing something in the name of God's love. And I want to see what that looks like. I came across a quote this summer that Becky had put on our refrigerator and one of little Naomi's writing pads that you can write on, and it's stuck there with a magnet. And it says this, you can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. Think about that for a moment. You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. See, I think we wear this mask, and it's a, a mask of being a giver, and we pretend to be loving. We might even think we're being loving. We can give without love. Giving's easy. It is. It makes us appear to be a loving person. The reality is our giving is done not with unconditional love, but with strings attached oftentimes with false motive. I mean, who's not guilty of that? It comes in the form of self-righteousness, of needing recognition, placing conditions upon our giving, whether it's in church and your time or money, your service, maybe at work, at home with your family, but you cannot love without giving. See, it's easy to give without being a loving person. I do it all the time. And it's ugly. And it happens in little things. Like just me, and my measuring stick is if I just do the dishes at home. I clear up the dishes, all the sink, I put them away, and it's clean. My wife sees it, and she says nothing. And then I know the measure of whether I was loving her or whether I was loving myself because I just was waiting for the recognition. Why didn't you thank me? Look what I did for you. <laughs> now, if I'm the only one in here, then I'm preaching to myself. 
But I don't think so. We do loving things. We give in the name of love, but we expect. It's conditional. We expect a return for our investment. We want the return. We selfishly want the recognition, the pat on the back, the money, the glory, whatever it is. But you can't love someone genuinely without giving. Giving is an expression of true love. And we can't love others without giving your life unconditionally to them. And that's, by definition, what agape love is. There's no conditions placed. You love because he first loved us. We give because we love. And see, here's what happens. We're not just deceiving others by a false doctrine or a false definition of love. We're deceiving ourselves as we love in an ungodly way. Even though we think we're living out godly principle of love. What do I mean? I mean, we see it all around in church today. It's often, we fail to recognize it in our own lives. We wrap up godly living in a word like love. Or the catchphrase, walk in love, or love one another. You know, they're biblical terms. We see it everywhere. We see entire Movements in the church based on words that are in the Bible. And I think love is one of them. But these biblical terms and commands, although true, can be deceptive because a mask can be worn. You see, and God's love requires a definition that in our flesh we don't easily accept because we want our input. We want to redefine Love makes it easy for us, more palatable for us. I heard a commentator once put it this way, and it's so true. We take Bible words without the sentence. Or we take Bible words without biblical context. Or we take Bible words without sound doctrine. In other words, we pull out a word and then make it our own and say it's from God when we're really missing the real definition of what it means, no matter what the term is. We see it a lot in different movements, and I don't want to step on any toes or get into trouble, so I won't talk about that. But I'm going to use the word love. It's universal. And it's in our text today. So we seem to easily take the truth like love today, create our own version of it, what God really means by it, because it's more easily attainable. It's more palatable to us. It's easier to hold someone else accountable to your measure, your standard of love. Obviously, if we have a 50% divorce rate, not only inside, outside the church, but inside the church, there's something wrong with our definition of love today because we're not living as Christians a biblical definition of unconditional love. We're going to see that in a minute. So we can't dismiss context The Lord says, walk in love. So, I mean, it's really kind of a daunting proposition when you think about the word love, because in 1 John 4, when he said, everyone who loves God is born of God, those that don't love don't know God. So we have to love the way God requires us to love. Otherwise, we have to seriously consider where our salvation is. Are we giving lip service to our Christianity, or are we truly living out a regenerate heart that is convicted 
and continues to be sanctified by the Spirit unto the Lord. So we look at our passage this morning, and, and I have to pause at the very beginning of the text, because in verse 1 of chapter 5, it says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now I want to phrase that out a minute. Imitators. Some translations say followers of God. The Greek, mimetes, where we get the word mimic. Mimic. Be mimics of God. It's used seven times in the New Testament. Six times Paul refers to mimic me. But this is the only time in the New Testament where Paul writes mimic God. He's the ultimate standard. So mimic is not someone who picks up general patterns. You know, um, some of you are familiar with Connor Menez. You know, the Menez family. And he got called up to start. And he's had a couple starts with the San Francisco Giants. He's um, a, a neat young man that has been playing all through the um, single A, double A, triple A ball. He's now, but many people say about him that he has mannerisms of Madison Bumgarner. He's a lefty, he's 6'4", he kind of has the same motion. But that's not a mimic. That's more of a general pattern. But mimic is to copy specific characteristics. The whole of Christian life can be summed up in that statement. Mimic God. I, I kind of thought about, Becky and I all, often will sit and look at people. and We often comment on friends' kids. And we'll say like, oh my goodness, if that's not just like a little mini-me, you know. I mean, we see like little, um, is it Derek's little one? What's that, guys? Sila? Oh my God. You know, little mini-me. Or we, we look at um, other friends of ours that they have little kids. I go, oh my gosh. I mean, that's just a little carbon copy. It's, and, and we refer to how they walk and how they talk and how they, their mannerisms. And I mean, their gait. Everything about them is kind of like, oh my, you know. And yeah, that's partly genetic. But obviously, they're mimicking, they're patterning their lives after their dad or their mom, their mannerisms, their characteristics. I, I think it's hilarious um, and we laugh and we think it's fun. I mean, honestly, as proud as I am of our boys, one of them is here today, I cringe that they've picked up on mannerisms that are me. And Becky points to me, and oftentimes she goes, that's you. I go, no, that's my mom. And if you know my mom, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So we are to mimic we are to be defined by the character traits and the manner in which we walk to the God who's created us. We're to reproduce everything that is true of God. I mean, and it all began that way. That was God's standard. Jesus proclaims in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, be perfect, therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect. Imitate God. And that's essentially what Peter says in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 15. He says, but he who has called you is holy, so be holy in all manner of lies, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. You see, this isn't just a New Testament principle. Be holy, for I am holy comes right out of Leviticus. Chapter, 15, or chapter 11, verses 45, 46. Um, it, it, the text says, For I am the Lord, he brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God, thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's been God's standard throughout the revealed word. So you say, well, that's easier said than done. 
be holy, be imitators of God, and it's tough to do. Yeah, it is. In fact, it's impossible to do. You can't do it on your own strength. You can't just grit your teeth and muster up as much oomph as you possibly can and say, I'm going to be like God regardless. But that's what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. You know how you start living like God? Start realizing that you can't be like God. That's where it starts. You see, you start with a broken and contrite spirit, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. The patokos, poor in the Greek. It doesn't mean you just you have enough to get by. It's a picture of the beggar in the first century whose head is down, whose hand is lifted. And he is completely dependent upon the giver for everything in his life. And that's the spiritual principle. We come, blessed are the poor. We have to come to God poor in spirit. For by grace you've been saved, not a result of works. Nothing you can do to earn it. So then that creates what? We start mourning over our sin. Blessed are those who mourn. Second of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek, the humble. And then what happens is the fourth beatitude, you start with such an overwhelming sense of your own sinfulness that you hunger and thirst for what? For righteousness. Blessed are those who are righteous, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, there's an amazing paradox in the scripture. On the one hand, you are to be like God. On the other hand, you can't be like God, and that's just the point. When you know you're to be like God and you know you can't be like God, then you know there's got to be something or someone else to make that power possible. And that's what Paul says in Ephesians. Look back at chapter 3 and verse 16. Chapter 3, verse 16, that God would grant us to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. In other words, I'm a sinner, I can't be like God, but I must be like him, but if I can't be what I must be, then there's got to be something inside of me that is creating what I can't do. And the Holy Spirit strengthens us with might in the inner man. So what's the result? Then that's verse 19, chapter 3. In order that, the text says, it's a purpose clause in the Greek, it's in order that, it's a result will be, you will be filled with all the fullness of God. See, Paul says, mimic God, but realize it's God's work, not yours. So here lies our dependence on the Spirit. If we're truly born again, the Spirit of God is at work in our lives, moving, making you like Christ, moving us into conformity with God, to imitate God. So be imitators of God. Well, how do we do that? Well, in this text, he gives us one way. And in this text, in verse chapter 5, be imitators of God, walk in love. So if God is love, then brothers and sisters, we have to be love. We don't feel love. We even sang a song that says, all of my days I want to praise your mighty love. And we're supposed to do that. But oftentimes we just want to feel love, and we want to praise God for his great love, but we aren't being love. We're not imitating God's love. See, 
be imitators of God. God is love. That's our focus. So even in the doctrine chapters, we see how love is woven throughout. I just looked at a few. Chapter 1 says, in love, he predestined us. Chapter 2, why did he show his great mercy? We sang about it. Because of his great love with which he loved us. Chapter 3, the love of Christ passes all knowledge. We see love strewn throughout. It's not just the practical side. It's the theology of who God is. So our whole position as a believer is predicated on God's love. So he wants us to imitate, to walk in his love. I love the beautiful child's illustration in the bulletin. Was this Derek's son? Hey, just follow the leader. It's so simple. And this message is so simple. But we got to be able to define the simplicity with doctrinal truth that will transform not only us in our walk with Jesus, but in our relationship with others, with our spouses, with our kids, with our coworkers, everywhere we go. 1 Corinthians 13, 13, Paul says, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest is what? It's love. Walk in love as a mimic of God. And in case you were wondering, these aren't suggestions. They're emphatic commands. Be an imitator and a walk in love. By the way, love is not a matter of feeling. It is a matter of the will rather than a feeling. I'm pretty sure that when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and waiting to die for the sin, and he said, Father, take this cup from me, not my will, but your will be done. That was an act of loving will because he wasn't feeling too good in his humanity. Love is not about a feeling. It never is, and it's never in the Bible. Love is the act of will. It's an unconditional act to give of yourself without return. Expect it. Well, sure, you have to start from the point of, you know, I'm a sinner. And you start from the fact that I can't do it. But it doesn't change the command. You've got to be what you can't be. It's mission impossible. But that's where the Spirit of God comes in. Now notice, we're getting real far. Now I'm on the word therefore. Sorry. Therefore. See, now this is where my English teacher side comes out of me. What's the therefore, therefore? Well, therefore is a conjunctive adverb. It connects. It's a transitional word that always connects to whatever the previous text is. So when you see, therefore, go back to chapter 4, verse 31. Now we're going backwards. What's the matter with me? So 4.31 says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Well, what are these? I'm not going to define the terms except for one way. They are the opposite of love. When you're bitter towards someone, you hold a grudge against them. You're 
angry towards him. There's two ways anger is used there. It's used as that one is an outward display of like an outward blast of anger. And another one is that smoldering internal anger that just never goes away. When you slander someone publicly or whisper behind their back, whatever the malice is, that's the exact opposite of love. And then verse 32 says, be kind to one another, forgiving, be tenderhearted. Those are the characteristics of love. Love is kind, love is tender, and love is forgiving. Think about this. What causes anger? What causes bitterness? What causes slander? Isn't it a lack of forgiveness that makes people bitter? Isn't it an inability to forgive that makes people come to wrath and anger? It's an inability to forgive that makes you slander people and whisper behind their back and hold malice, ill will towards them. It's because you don't forgive them that you hold on to these things. And the reason you don't forgive them, frankly, is that you don't what? You don't love them. You see? It comes all around. Many of us think that we have a great handle on love. Listen to me. Measure your love today. I've had to do this all week. There are lots of ways we can talk about it, but let's deal with the text as it appears. Measure your love today by the thought of forgiveness. Okay? So think about this. Because I really believe, now hang on to this, I really believe that as far as we're concerned, the greatest measuring rod for love in your life is your forgiveness. How you are willing to forgive. I mean, that's the way God even presents his love to us. When you boil it all down to the lowest common denominator, God so loved the world that he took you and me. Sorry, John, I wasn't pointing to you in particular. Jack, I'll point to Jack because he's he, wherever Jack. He took you, a dirty, rotten, God-hating sinner with a heart filled with sin and evil, and he died on the cross to, to bear that sin so that we could have eternal relationship with him forever. You see, what I'm saying is love is the best measure in its ability to forgive. Because it's God's ability to forgive that reveals the extent of his love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's the ultimate expression of love, but it starts with forgiveness. They go hand in hand. God so loved the world. You see, what I'm saying is love is best measured in its ability to forgive. It's God's ability to forgive that reveals the extent of his love. I mean, even when we were dead in our sin, God made us alive together in Christ. Why? Because of his great mercy, based on his great love with which he loved us. The most amazing act of love that can ever do is forgive the greatest evil. And that's what God did. So we are called to imitate God's love to others. Measure your love. Ask yourself, do you love? Because children of God love. And since forgiveness is that measuring rod or that litmus test, the depth of our love for God, how well do you forgive? 
Look at verse uh, chapter 4, verse 32 again. Forgiving each other just as in Christ God also forgiven you. And then we see it in verse, chapter 5, verse 2. Walk in love just as Christ loved you. And what? Gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice. So how do we forgive? Just as Christ has forgiven us. Just as God in Christ has forgiven us. Think about what that means. And I kind of realized this after I studied through this passage of Scripture. And why is it so hard to forgive others? You know, especially brothers and sisters in Christ. Why is it that we hold grudges and malice and we want revenge or payback? No matter what anyone does to you or to me in the body of believers, no matter how much someone slanders you or hurts you or wounds you or offends you, listen, Christ has already paid the penalty for that sin. Christ has already paid the penalty for that sin. Jesus already bore that sin in his body. So if our spouse, if a friend, if our children, if a pastor, if another believer offends you or hurts you, our love for them should cover that sin because Christ already paid the penalty for it. Do we see that? Do we live that? That's an incredible theology that has unbelievable practical implications and should cut us to the quick. It does me, I'm telling you. If we live the way Christ loves us, we don't seek payback, we don't make them feel guilty, we don't hold it over their head, Christ already paid the penalty for that sin. In fact, Peter puts it this way. 1 Peter 4, verse 8, love each other fervently because love covers a multitude of sins. You see, it's not the more we love, the more our sins are covered. No, no, no. It's the more fervent our love, the more Christ-like our love, the more we love as God in Christ loves us, our love covers one another's sin. That is an amazing truth. In other words, I love you so much that my love for you covers your sin. I don't see you as a sinner. I see you as Jesus. Jesus. That has so many practical implications. One, we're going to screw up. We're going to sin. We're going to badmouth. We're going to slander. We're going to put down. We're going to lack forgiveness. We're going to be evil in our speech and actions against brothers and sisters in Christ. If you receive that, forgive that person. Because God in Christ already has. And number two, if you have a brother or sister come up to you and hold you accountable to sin in your life, don't take offense. Don't get angry. Don't say you take the log out of your eye before you take the speck out of my eye, which is also taken out of context all the time. But the reality is, if a brother comes up to you or a sister and holds you accountable to sin in your life, if you love them the way God in Christ loves you, then your love for that person covers their sin, and you only see Jesus coming to you. You see that? So measure your love today by how much you're willing to forgive. If you get upset at other people in the body of Christ, that's on you. That's on me. 
That's on my lack of love because I'm not loving as Christ loves me. That's why we live in this mask and we pretend we love and we fail to love as God in Christ loves us and that's what we're called to do and to be. That word fervent in this text literally means stretched out at full capacity. It's an image, image of a horse at full gallop. Every now and again we'll watch you know, the Kentucky Derby or some of those and you see these horses in slow motion. Just they're, I mean, they're reaching and stretching and their muscles and every part of them are just pulling and stretching. That's how we're to love one another. And the only way we can love each other forgivingly and the only way we can love each other with great mercy and the only way we can love as God and Christ loves us is if we experience that love because that love put Jesus on the cross. And we're to love in that manner. So the point is this. The depth of our love is indicated by how much we forgive. It's really a measuring rod. It's a gauge whether or not we're walking in love. True biblical love, not compromising, not external, not conditional, not emotional. The true definition of love is to love each other fervently as God and Christ love you. So the second point, and we're going to look at it tomorrow because I'll spend every bit as much more time on this one, is the depth of your love is indicated by how much you know you've been forgiven. And we see that if you've experienced folks who have been brought out of physical debauchery and sinful lifestyle, they understand in the physical world a little bit more about the depth of what, how they've been forgiven. If you're like me, grew up perfect in a Christian home, still remains perfect to this day, you know, and Becky, pastor's kid, I mean, you know that, you know, we have been saved, but we really haven't been saved from all that much. I mean, that's a bunch of horse malarkey. So matter how, and we're going to look at that next week. The truths really go hand in hand. You can measure your love by how much you will forgive someone else, but you can also tell how much you know you've been loved by how much you realize you've been forgiven. Oh, we've missed that so much. We often say, Oh, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Yeah, very true biblical truth. But it's more like a quote or a tagline that we put at the end of a prayer, because it, and it's a phrase that's truly absent of depth and conviction, and it, we don't have it play out in our day-to-day -day lives like we should. Well, that's for next time, and I'm sorry we got through two verses. But that's the beauty of going through texts First at a time, you can pick up where he left off. Be imitators of God, walk in love. Do you walk in love just as Christ loves you? Or do you masquerade an appearance of love? It's so easy to deceive ourselves into thinking that our love for others is building God's kingdom when in reality it's building our own little kingdom. Paul writes to the Corinthians in his first letter in chapter 3. He says, your works are going to be judged. And they're either going to be wood, hay, straw. And they'll be burned when judged because of your motive. Or they're going to be silver, gold, precious metals. When burned, they're going to be refined and pure and they're going to last. 
although we'll be saved, our motive in how we do Christian service. And I will tell you, it's one of the biggest struggles of my life, being someone who for the last 25 years or more has been up in front of people, whether it's 14-year-old junior hires or high school teaching or retreats or preaching. It's so easy for Satan to manipulate our hearts and to build our own little kingdom. So don't, do not one of you pat me on the back and say, good job today. I don't want to hear it. Just say, thank you, God. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the message. May it convict our hearts. Because we can build our own little kingdom so easy in the name of love and giving. It's easy to give with a masquerade of love. But true love is an extension. The giving is an extension of our, our love. So I believe how we walk in love, the sacrificial, unconditional, faithful love determines our motive for our giving and our service. C.S. Lewis wrote this, On the whole, God's love for us is a much safer subject to think about than our love for him. So I hope this morning we looked a little bit at our love for him and how it's manifested and works itself out to be an imitator of the God of this universe. So may that not be true of us. May we be an imitator of God. Therefore, be imitators of God, mimics of God, followers of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for you. Our Father in heaven, I am, I am just riddled with guilt and sorrow over my own sin in terms of the way I love. I could look back in my life and so much in the name of love was done in the name of myself with Christian ease wrapped around me. Father, we need to take a hard look at our own lives. It's not just enough to walk an aisle and pray a prayer. Paul says, continue to prove that you're in the faith. And we do that daily by loving others and loving you. So may our, our giving, may our, our sacrifice, may our love for one another be just like God in Christ loved us. Sacrificially, unconditionally, and faithfully, not expecting anything in return. But God, to love, to walk in love. Easy to say, hard to do, and we can only do it through the empowering of your Holy Spirit, through humility, through an, an ability to seek daily a forgiveness and extend that forgiveness to others regardless, because you've already paid the penalty for that sin. So we thank you for the great depth of your love for us. May we experience that depth from you so we can extend it to others. And we look forward to how these truths change us and mold us, and we pray for your conviction and encouragement this morning in Christ's name. Amen.